um, the second Bible reading will be from Revelation 17 um, until 18. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. When I saw her, I marveled greatly. But the angel said to me, Why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with seven heads and ten horns that carries her. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers of, on, the, uh, on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see this, the beast, because it was and is not and is to come. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. There are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is, the other has not yet come, and when he does come, he must remain only a little while. As for the beast, that was and is not, it is an eighth, but it belongs to the seven, and it does, and it goes to destruction. And the ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. These are of one mind, and they hand over their power and authority to the beast. They will make war on the lamb, and the lamb will conquer them, for he is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those with him are called and chosen and faithful. And the angels and the angel said to me, "The waters that you saw with the prostitute, where the prostitute is seated, are peoples and multitudes, and the nations and nations and languages. And the ten horns that you saw, they are they and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked." and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. Revelation 18. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory. And he called out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, 
And the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her. And the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. For her sins are heaped high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Pay her back as she herself has paid back others, and repay her double for her deeds. Mix a double portion for her in the cup she mixed. As she glorified herself and lived in luxury, so give her a like measure of torment and mourning. Since in her heart she says, I sat as a queen, I am no widow, and mourning I shall never see. For this reason, her plagues will come in a single day, death and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire. For mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. And the kings of the earth who committed sexual immorality and lived in luxury with her will weep and wail over, over her when they see the smoke of her burning. They will stand far off in fear of her torment and say, Alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city, Babylon, for in a single hour your judgment has come. And the merchants of the earth weep and mourn for her, since no one buys their cargo anymore. Cargo of gold, silver, jewels, pearls, fine linen, purple cloth, silk, scarlet cloth, all kinds of scented wood, all kinds of articles of ivory, all kinds of articles of costly wood, bronze, iron, and marble, cinnamon, spice, incense, myrrh, frankincense, wine, oil, fine flour, wheat, cattle, and sheep, horses, and chariots, and slaves, that is, human souls." The fruit of which your soul longed has gone from you, and all your delicacies and your splendors are lost to you, never to be found again. The merchants of these wares who gained wealth from her will stand far off in fear of her torment, weeping and mourning aloud. Alas, alas, for the great city that, has clothed, that was clothed in fine linen, in purple scarlet, adorned with gold, with jewels, and with pearls. For in a single hour, all this wealth has been laid waste. And all shipmasters and and seafaring men, sailors, and all those whose trade is on the sea, stood far off and cried out as they saw the smoke of her burning. What city was like the great city? And they threw dust on her, on their heads as they wept and mourned, crying out, Alas, alas, for the great city where all who had ships at sea grew rich by her wealth. For in a single hour she has been laid to waste. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great milestone and threw it into the sea, saying, So will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. And the sound of harpists and musicians, of flute players and trumpets will be heard in you no more. And a craftsman craftsman of any craft will be found in you no more. And the sound of the mill will be heard in you no more. 
and the light of a lamp will shine in you no more. And the voice of bridegroom and bride will be heard in you no more. For your merchants were the great ones of the earth, and all nations were deceived by your sorcery. And in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints and of all who have been slain on earth. This is the word of the Lord. Good evening, everyone. It's really good to see uh, all of you today. It's good to see uh, some of our students back here. We haven't seen some of you in a while, so it's good to see, to see some of you and some who are former students, actually. So it's good to see you guys here tonight. Uh, we are in our seventh study in Revelation, so we are close to finishing. Um, actually, yeah, we're close to finishing. David is going to do um, in the last talk two weeks from now. And just to bring you up to speed, I think it will be worthwhile first sometime during the week for you to, to grab hold of Revelation, um, to grab hold of the series in Revelation we have been doing uh, so that you would uh, know what we have been doing in the last while. Um, and just to summarize a few things, a few thoughts to you, what has been clear to us as we've been going through the book of Revelation is that Jesus is sovereign. Uh, he is sovereign uh, over all of history. He's sovereign uh, in, over death and he's sovereign uh, in judgment as well. And last week, particularly, we spent some time looking at that. Jesus' sovereignty in judgment. And if, we, if there are a few things you probably remember, is that we said that the seals, the bowls, and the trumpets all tell of God's judgment in all of history and on the last day, and that these are parallel and show God's judgment on the world, a world that is evil, a world that is turned against him. These are some of the things that we spoke about uh, last week. And if you remember something else that I said last week, is that uh, God has actually, or judges in all of human history, different empires that do not uh, symbolize his, his goodness, who symbolize evil. He does that, and tonight we will continue to see a picture of that. But let me just say, uh, because the study we are do- doing is thematic, uh, what I will do today is make a contrast between the city of man, which is Babylon, and David, when he comes up in two weeks' time, will tell us about the city of God, the new Jerusalem. So we will spend some time just talking about what this city of man looks like. And then we will talk about what her destiny is, because John so clearly paints for us here what her destiny is. It's quite clear on that. Now, if I may remind you of something else as well, we said the churches that John writes to actually struggle with two kinds of evil. The first kind of evil is evil that comes externally or evil from without. And this is persecution by the world, persecution for them at this time by the Roman Empire. But something else that is very clear is these churches also struggle with evil from within. So they're enticed by the world. They're drawn away from Jesus by the world and Tonight, we will see that so clearly. And what John will help us to see is he will unmask or uncover, if we use the word for revelation that we have been for the last few weeks, he will uncover evil for us and show us the lies behind her deceptive attractiveness and how God ultimately deals with evil or deals with her. So how about I pray for us as we come to God's word. Our Father, we do pray. 
that as we come to your word tonight, that we would see the city of man, that we would see Babylon, and how Babylon, the great prostitute, often entices us as your church. And Father, may we, your people, at seeing her destiny be cautioned to turn back to you. May we see the deceptive lies of what she offers and ultimately look forward to the city of God, your new Jerusalem, your new heavens and earth, which you will give to us, your faithful people, as your promise to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, if there's one thing the movie world tries to convince you of, the movie world tries to convince all of us of, it has to be the acceptance of evil. Just think about it. Think with me of the many movies that you can think of in which the anti-hero or the villain is portrayed as a winner or is portrayed in such a way so as to endear us to them so that we like them. I'm sure you can think of a few movies already that are like that. See, the kind that come to mind to me are a movie that is a brilliant movie. It's called The Usual Suspect from 1995. Brilliant movie. That the now disgraced Kevin Spacey, you've got to say disgraced before you say his name. But hey, the now disgraced Kevin Spacey plays a guy who, I mean, he fakes being a cripple and tells his version of events. And all throughout the movie, you are convinced that he's the guy you should like. And then towards the end of the movie, you realize that he's actually been the bad guy the whole time. But the movie has endeared you to him. And so when you think back to all the things he has done, you somehow still find yourself liking him. Or think of other movies, like The Joker. The recent movie with The Joker with Joaquin Raphael Phoenix. Think of how the movie highlights his disorders. But one of the things it does apart from highlighting his disorders is to endear you to him. See, by the end of the movie, despite the fact that he's killed so many other people, or so many people rather, you rather find yourself thinking, man, I get him. I get why he did that. The movie somehow endears you to him and almost desensitizes you to his evil. It's amazing how the world moves us towards accepting evil as being good, the antihero or the villain. That kid's animation as well, who, which almost fall in this category. I think Manga Mind, uh, I love that movie, I watch it. A lot of times with my kids. I think that movie there almost gives you that, that idea. And I think Despicable Me with Drew as well does a similar thing. Or think of Wansler in The Lorix. See, I wouldn't be shocked in, in years to come if there's a movie that comes out to portray, uh, like a Cinderella movie rather, that comes out to portray the evil stepmother as a character that you should endear yourself to. I wouldn't be shocked if that happens. Now, let me say, I have nothing against all of those movies. I'm not the type of guy who's going to tell you, get home and break your TV or your laptop. I'm not. I actually like most of these movies, if not all of them. But what I find interesting from these movies and our world is how our world seems to cheapen or make light of evil. It seems as though the world tries its level best to get us to accept what is dark, what is bad and wicked. It packages it in such a way that it is attractive and acceptable and with no T's and C's, right? 
Now think with me for a moment of the deceptive whispers that a Christian hears from the world, a world that says to him, hey man, there's nothing wrong with a little fling. There's nothing wrong. No one will get hurt. He or she doesn't have to know John Legend. Or think of the, of the deceptive whispers of the world that says to the Christian, there's nothing wrong with cooking the books or embezzling funds. There's nothing wrong with cheating on academic work or anything of that sort. There's nothing with, wrong with compromising your views of sexuality, feticide, racism, and so on. See, I'm convinced that as we look around, we can see our world trying to get us to buy the idea that bad is not so bad. Once Lear says in Lorics, how bad can this be? You are just doing what comes natural. But John uncovers here in this passage. He uncovers and amass evil to us and shows us its ugliness behind its PR and marketing and shows us that it's not really acceptable. And as we go through the passage, John will show us so clearly the folly and the error of living for the city of Babylon, for living for the city of man instead of the city of God. Again, I did say I would make a contrast so that in two weeks' time when you hear from David of the city of, day, of, city of God, you are able to remember what the city of man is like and so clearly as well what the destiny of the city of man is. Now, I'm sure you see a paper in front of you there that gives you what our three points are for tonight. Again, nothing different. There are three points. The very first one, the lie. What is the lie of the city of man? And two, what we will think about is the truth. And last, we will see the call from John as it relates to the city, to Christians, to the churches that he writes to. So three points, the lie, the truth, and the call. Let's go to our first point, the lie. Now, the lie that every person, including Christian, Christians, believe is that you and I are self-sufficient, autonomous, and authors of our own destiny. See, this is the lie that characterizes or marks the city of man that stands opposed to the city of God. See, the city of man, which in the Bible is, is, is identified as Babylon, is a city that is like this. A city that says, you and I can be self-sufficient, autonomous, and be the authors of our own destiny. We don't need God in our lives to make decisions uh, for ourselves. Now, Let's read uh, chapter 17 and see how John actually paints the city of man or the city of Babylon. And I want you to notice two imagery that he uses, both of whom uh, are, are Old Testament imageries that will help us understand how John here paints to us the city of man. Let's read chapter 17 from verse 1 to verse 6 that was read to us a little bit earlier. Listen to what, how John uh, describes the city of man. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls from last week's sermon came up and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters. Notice that? He calls her, or the city, a great prostitute. But I'll point out the link for us a little bit later for you to see. With whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. 
And he has carried me away, and he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness. And I saw a woman, again, notice that, sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and, and it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman, again, was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and of earth's abomination. And I saw the woman again drunk with the blood of the saints, uh, the blood of the martyrs. I don't know if you realize what John is doing there. There are two images that he puts together for us there. The image of the great prostitute, as he calls her there, or the great harlot. And then he talks of a woman. You see, you and I are meant to see as, as we read through this passage that John is putting together the great prostitute and the woman. We are meant to think that this is the same character. But notice what he says in verse 5. She has a name of mystery on her forehead, Babylon. Babylon the great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abomination. There are two, two images that John there puts together for us. Two images that I've just said are from the Old Testament. The first is the picture of Babylon and the picture of a prostitute or the great prostitute. Now let's put these two images together. Let's figure out how the Old Testament actually helps us to understand what the city of man is from these two images. I'm sure you would have realized that a little bit earlier we read from Genesis 11, a passage that I think would be great for us, not actually that I think, a passage that would be great for us to turn to at this moment to see what John tells us about Babylon. So two images, again, I said, that points to the city of man. The first, Babylon, we'll see something as well about the harlot. The first one, let's go to Genesis 11. Before we get to Genesis 11, what we see happening in Genesis 9 is that straight after the flood, God commands Noah and his family to be fruitful, to multiply, and to fill the earth. And we know that in one sense that began to happen. But by the time we get to Genesis 11, we can tell that there's a, a, there's a story twist or plot that happens in this story. Look at what we are told in Genesis 11 from verse 1 to verse 4 that we read a, bit, a little bit earlier. This is what Genesis 11 says. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as the people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them together. And they had, and they had bricks for stone and butamen for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower with its tops to the heavens. And let us make a, man, a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the earth. There's two things there that we see in this passage that characterize what the city of man is like. And these are the two things. Mankind comes and bends together and decides to disobey God, disobey the way of life that God has commanded, and rather do things their own way. See, mankind decides we will not listen to God, rather we will make a name for ourselves. See, the city of Babylon, the city of Babel, now these two names, these names here, you can use them together. Some say the place where Babel was, there was the kingdom of Babylon was built around the same area. But when you look at the names, they're very, very much uh, synonymous. So when you see it, city of Babel, you can't think the city of Babylon. 
But this is what we see about this city. It is a city that is characterized by people who say, or a system of thinking, or a way of thinking that says, we will not listen to God. We will make a name for ourselves. And how that describes our world today. See, the theme song of this city has to be, I did it my way. I did it my way. And if you think, as you read through the whole Old Testament, you'll find out there's actually a king who claims this very theme song. He says it a little bit later. Yesterday we spent some time with our, our, our Bible study group at, uh, at Style, and one of the leaders pointed out how actually one of the kings says this very thing of himself. See, this is what the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, says. Is not this the great Babylon I have built by my power for my glory? Exactly that. I did it my way. This is a city that is characterized by saying, we will not listen to God. Rather, we will live for ourselves. We'll make a name for ourselves. See, this is a proud, self-exalting city. This is a self-exalting way of living that has characterized mankind in all of history. Not just in Genesis 3 and 11. All of history. Mankind has lived this way. We will not live for God. We'll live for ourselves. Again, I'm quite sure you can look around in our world and see this very thing. Now, the next imagery that John uses for us, a little bit later we'll put these two images together, is the imagery of a harlot. Why does he use the imagery of a prostitute, you wonder? So there are four reasons I will point out to why he uses this imagery of a prostitute to refer to Babylon or the city of men. The very first thing to point out is, actually, when you read the book of Revelation, you realize that it is a book that is centered on God's faithfulness, or rather the faithfulness of God's people to the Lamb. See, God has made a promise to his people that he would come back to them to rescue them, and what he requires of his people is to keep to the end of the covenant by being faithful. So it's interesting that that's something that's pointed out to us. And a little bit later, you will hear from David that what is the city of God is actually called the bride to contrast it with the city of man, which is called a halot or a prostitute. Now, going back to the Old Testament, the second reason, the second reason is in the Old Testament, you find that the idea of prostitution is often used to show the spiritual adultery or the turning away of God's people from him to worship other idols. And there's a story that so powerfully portrays that in the Old Testament. There's a man who's called Hosea, who's called by God to marry a woman called Goma because God wanted Israel to see through his marriage, through the the marriage of Hosea, how Israel has been unfaithful to him by following other gods. So you see now why the, the, the author chooses this picture of prostitution? In the Old Testament, we see so clearly how the Israelites turning away from God is portrayed to us as them prostituting themselves to other gods. The third reason why the author uses prostitution here is because the worship in local temples at this time and long before this as well often involved prostitution with money and power. Think of the temple of Artemis. But this is what you see as you think of the world of Asian minor. The last reason that the author uses prostitution is because prostitution um, lures people by giving them a sense of power and a sense of pleasure at the expense of others. 
And you see the kingdom that, or the empire that John will now portray to us is a kingdom that does exactly this, or an empire that does exactly this. And it's interesting that John actually portrays Jerusalem, God's people, in the same way, that they began to be like their culture. They themselves became, in a sense, like the prostitute. So again, I said, I'll put the two images for us together. So what John wants us to see here in this first image of the city of man, where man thinks of living life themselves, without, for themselves rather, without God, he puts this picture together with the picture of a prostitute to show that this is exactly what God's people do. And when they do that, they actually align themselves with the city of man rather than the city of God. They're not living for God. Think of two churches that were mentioned to us in chapter 2 and 3, how their sin is actually described as prostitution. Think of the church in Pergamum, that that church is said to be led by the spirit of Balaam and Balak, two Old Testament characters that actually led God's people away. And do you know how? Through prostitution. See, what Balaam and Balak did after struggling for a while to figure out a way to curse the people of God is that they finally managed to get the Israelites' men to prostitute themselves by sleeping with prostitutes. And here we see how God is showing, uh, how God is showing them how prostitution is often linked or is a great picture or symbol of the people of God turning away from him. The church in Thyatira is said to be led by the spirit of Jezebel, who is a killer and a prostitute. See, the imagery of prostitution speaks of turning away from God to other gods. And so John here calls these Christians to see that, that any society around them that wears the hat of Babylon, any society around them that shows the values of the city of man is actually Babylon. It is the city of man. And so they must beware of being induced, or rather seduced, by that city. See here, John wants them to see how this very city that they're living in, or empire they're living in, called Rome, is a moniker, or an AKA for, Rome, for, for Babylon. See, Rome is just like Babylon. A Rome can be said to be Babylon. Actually, a lot more empires in the history of mankind can be said to be Babylon because they have a lifestyle or a way of thinking that is very similar to Babylon. And I want you to see how here John portrays Babylon or the Babylonian way of thinking as being attractive. Look at how he describes the prostitute in verse 4. He says, the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hands a golden cup full of abominations and impurities of sexual immorality. Now, that is a picture in one sense of her wealth. And this is what John is wanting to show them, that Babylon does look attractive. The way of living for the world looks more attractive than it does than the way of living for God. And a little bit later in chapter 13, I want you to see that John clearly points to them that there are many who have actually fallen to her power, who have been seduced by her. Listen to what he says in, 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 in chapter 18, verse 3. For all the nations have drunk the wines of the passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have, co- have committed immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of a a luxurious living. 
So you see how many have fallen for her, have followed her own way of thinking. But one of the things we should see that is the lie about Babylon, it is this. While she is very seductive, her wealth, her glamour, her celebrity, and her beauty is only temporary. It is fleeting. There comes a time where it will end. One of the, some of the commentators actually point to the fact that when the hour is mentioned to refer to the power of the beast there in chapter 17 in verse, let me just find it again. It's chapter 17, I think in verse 9. It refers to, 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 to these powers only, to, to the beasts only having power for an hour. Some of the commentators point out to how this is true of her power as well, or, or her seduction. So as we read through Revelation, some of the things we need to remember is that John clearly, what he does so clearly is a phrase that we've said over and again, is that he comforts those who are wounded, the Christians who are being persecuted. He clearly comes to them and reminds them of God's judgment of evil, but he also wounds the comfortable by showing them that by aligning themselves to Babylon, they have chosen or they're choosing the wrong route. See, he warns these believers of being seduced by the Roman way of life. And I think as we hear these words, you and I ought to think, is there a midrant way of life that you and I could be seduced by and drawn by as well? Is there a way of life that, uh, that the midrant as well is very similar to Babylon with that often draws us away from God as well? Is midrant also like Babylon offer, offering us alternatives to living for God other than living in the way that God calls us to. Now, I think as you, as you look around us, you will clearly see that. You will clearly see it in the way that mid-rent or the way the world offers us money, sex, and power. I think the way it often offers us money is the example that I used a little bit earlier, that there's nothing wrong with cooking, up or cooking the books. There's nothing wrong with embezzling funds. There's nothing wrong with stepping on others to get to the top in your company. See, if you and I do this... We're actually following the Babylonian way of, of, of living. We have chosen to live for the city of men. When we decide that we are not going to follow what the Bible says or the scriptures say regarding sex or sexuality, we're actually deciding to live in the Babylonian way of life. And when we choose to use power to oppress others, as Rome and all other empires have done, we are choosing the way of life that is very synonymous with Babylon. And our world is actually full of empires that are like this. But I like what uh, C.J. Mahaney, uh, a, a pastor, says to caution Christians against the seduction of Babylon. And this is what he says to get us to see what happens in the book of Revelation. He says, today, the greatest challenge facing Christians is not persecution from the world, but seduction from the world or by the world. And I think this is true. I think you look at Midrand. I think very few of us can ever speak of being in one sense persecuted. Yes, we may be opposed for standing for the gospel in various areas in our lives, whether it's at work, in our homes, or anywhere else. But I think more often than not, what we don't see in the book of Revelation is the caution against being seduced by the world. See, the world can often be seductive. See, the city of Babylon or the city of man will portray evil to you as being something that is attractive. Evil is something that you should take as being good. C.S. Lewis 
says this to show how half-hearted my endured desires are, which is why we are seduced or drawn by the world. This is what he says. He says, you and I are half-hearted creatures, fooling around with drink and sex and ambition, while infinite joy is offered to us, like an ignorant child who goes on making mud pies in the slums because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are too easily pleased. And this is true of the church. Now again, I did say that as we come to Revelation, Excuse me, we should not just focus on the very fact that John tells this church of persecution that comes from externally. This church actually has evil from within that it struggles with as well. And John so clearly here warns them of being seduced by the prostitute, of being seduced by the city of men and Babylon. And the same warning goes to us. I mean, this is the question that you and I have got to wrestle with. Do we fear persecution? But, and, but underestimate seduction. Do we fear persecution, but underestimate seduction? Do we underestimate the fact that the world can draw us away from Jesus, just like these churches? If you remember anything, there's only two of them that got a good commendation. Five of them were told that they were either sick or asymptomatic, so they actually became seduced by the world. And I think we've got to see this caution that John gives to us. Let's not buy the lie of the city of man. Like I said, David will point to us what the city of God offers us. And as you think about that, you should contrast it with what the city of man offers us. Our second point, the truth. And this is the truth we've got to see about Babylon. And this is more clearly about a destiny. And I want here for us to see how chapter 17, especially the end of chapter 17 and chapter 18, so clearly points to us the truth regarding Babylon and her destiny. See, as you read through chapter 17 and, and 18, it just sounds like Genesis 11. See, men builds their way up to God and wants to build a name for themselves. And what does God do? He comes down and confuses them. As you read chapter 17, the end of it and the end of chapter 18, you see that the end is very similar. The one who comes out winning at the end is God. See, the city of men once again achieves nothing as God defies them and shows them that they've chosen the wrong way. See, what is clear as we read through chapter 17 and 18 is that the city of man will be destroyed. Babylon, the prostitute, she will be destroyed. God will expose her. He will bring her into account and punish her and all who have chosen her way of life. I want us to see the destruction that John speaks of from around chapter, from around verse 15 of chapter 17. Let's read together in Revelation 17. Look at what John says. He says, And the angel said to me, The waters that she saw where the prostitute is seated are the peoples and the multitudes and the nations and the languages. Now, it's interesting what John does here is, He contrasts to us, if you remember chapter 7, he speaks of the multitude in chapter 7 as well. But this is the multitude that worships the lamb. Here, the multitude that he speaks of is the multitude that worships the beast. It is those who have chosen to follow the prostitute. And this is what he says. And the ten horns that you saw 
they and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her and burn her with fire. For God has put it, in, has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being, one, by being of one mind and handing her over their royal powers to the... Excuse me, let's go back to verse 17. For God has put into, into their hearts to carry out his purposes by being of one mind and handing over their royal powers to the beast until the world, the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings and the kings of the earth. I don't know if you notice what happens there, that those whom the prostitute worked with, those whom uh, she walked alongside with, Turn against her. So, in one sense, you see how her mandate or way of living is actually self destructive. That those who lived with her actually turn against her. See, as we think of God's judgment, not just of Rome and other empires, we should see that God's judgment is mostly about the way in which empires become self destructive. The empires themselves seem to come down on themselves, or they seem to cave in on themselves. And when this happens, this is usually God's judgment on them. Now, there's a, a lot more pictures that John gives us of this picture of judgment or the destruction of Babylon. Look at what in chapter 18, verse 2, he says. He says, fallen, fallen, and this is what one of the voices says, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. And a little bit later, if you continue reading from verse 5, it says this, for her sins are heaped as high as the heavens, and God has remembered her iniquities. Now that phrase there is a phrase to say that God knows what she has done, and God will repay to her, it will repay to her what she has done. So God will bring judgment to her. And a little bit later, I want you to see what John says about this city. He says, as you read from verse 21. So will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. Notice the, re the repeating of no more from then on. And the sound of harpists and musicians, of the flute players and trumpets, will be heard in you no more. And the craftsmen of, the, of any craft will be found in you no more. And the sound of the meal will be heard in you no more. And so on and on and on. It's clear God will bring his destruction on Babylon. And he will bring it, out, he will bring it down ultimately. Now, as we talk about judgment, I quickly want to take us back to last week. If you remember anything about last week, we said what you see about the seals, the bowls, and the trumpets is that these are judgments that are parallel. These are par judgments that are in all of human history, but come together at the end when God brings down the curtain on all of human history. And you see, the kind of phrase that is used in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, to refer to this judgment is the day of the Lord. So you can think of even this destruction of Babylon happening on the day of the Lord, but we've got to explain in some sense what the day of the Lord is about. See, the day of the Lord, as you read through the prophets, did not just refer to the end judgment of God. See, the prophets saw the day of the Lord like uh, a mountain range. So this is an illustration that I used yesterday with our group that as you read through the Bible, what you see about the day of the Lord is the, the prophets see it as, as the mountain range in Cape Town. They see it as being one day that will happen in all of history. 
But just like the mountain ranges in Cape Town, as you get closer, you see that there's, uh, there's Lion's Head. You see the others. What are, what are the others? Let me remember. Uh, there's Lion's Head. David? Signal Hill. Someone else said something yesterday. Chapman's Peak. And there are many others. And at the end, you see Table Mountain. See, this is the thing that you see about the day of the Lord. It looks like one day. But what we see with the prophets as they explain the day of the Lord is that as it gets closer, as they look at the fall of each empire, all of those, all of those events will be like these different hills that move towards that final ultimate mountain. So from far, for us, it looks like one mountain. But the closer you get, you realize that it's a number of mountains that actually show us a series that is leading towards the last day of judgment. So as, I mean, if you're taking a drive and you're driving on your car, you'll often see this, that you will see what looks like one mountain, but the closer you get, you realize that it is a series of them. And in a similar way, the Old Testament speaks of the day of the Lord in that sense, that the day of the Lord actually happened in the Exodus. So the fall of Egypt could be considered the day of the Lord because then Egypt was brought down. God brought down an, an empire that was oppressive. And for the Israelites, for them, that would have seemed like the day of the Lord. A little bit later, as you move, you think of kingdoms like Assyria. When, As- when Assyria was brought down by Babylon, you could think of the coming down of Assyria as being that, the day of the Lord. And you can think of Babylon, you can think of Greece, you can think of Rome, and any other empire in history as being that. See, you and I are meant to think of the day of the Lord as being any time God intervenes in human history and decides to bring his judgment, to stop the evil of mankind, to bring his judgment upon, uh, upon the city of man that has turned his back on him. And so for these guys, as they hear these words that John speaks to him, speaks to them, they would have not thought John is simply here talking about, is talking about God's judgment at the end. They would have seen this as God one day coming to bring judgment upon Rome, which is what God did. Rome ultimately fell. But if you remember something else that I said, that even Jerusalem began to imitate the city of man and lived like the city of man. And in the same way, God brought his judgment upon Jerusalem. The temple fell and Jerusalem was destroyed. So every time we see oppressive empires coming down in history, we should see, in a sense, God intervening and bringing his judgment. I shuddered to say this when I thought about this sermon. But when you see Hitler and his empire coming down, you are seeing God intervening in human history. You're seeing God intervening, even, even in our country, in bringing down the oppressive empire of the apartheid government. And as Christians, as we look around and sit and we are oppressed or face oppression from the world, or as Christians, as we see a world that is seductive, that draws us close, we should realize that ultimately God will bring down all of these oppressive powers, especially when their seduction or their wealth is linked with oppressing, with oppressing other peoples. So what is clear about Babylon is that Babylon will be brought down either in this life or when Jesus comes back ultimately to bring back, to bring down everything or every power that has stood against him. So this is encouragement to these Christians and warning. It's encouragement and warning to them. 
And so this helps us to move to our last point where John says to them, he gives them a call. He gives a call to these Christians who are seduced by Rome. This is our last point, the call. And for that, let's read verse 4 of chapter 18 together. Look at what John says to us in chapter 18. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in the plagues. The plagues are judgment, because the plagues in the chapters before this we've seen represent judgment. So what is clear, what John is saying to these Christians, the Christians who are mentioned in chapter 2 and chapter 3, is come out of Rome. And this language is actually very similar to what, Je- to, to what Jesus says to the church in Sardis. Jesus says, wake up to the church in Sardis. And every one of those churches are called to repent. They are called to walk away from the way of the world or the way that the world lives. They should rather live in the way that God calls them to. And in the same way, you and I are called to see that. We are called to come back to God and not turn back and look at Rome. Because one, we know Rome will be destroyed too. Anyway, as we saw in the first point, all that she offers are lies. See, what Rome offers us is mud pies. What Rome offers us is salt water in the desert. What Babylon offers us is a chocolate-flavored cow dung ice cream. It looks satisfying, but it's not. Its end is destruction. And we ought to see that. We ought to see the folly that is offered by the city of man and realize the destructive end that is facing her. And so we should hear these very words from John, who says to this church, come out, wake up. John, Jesus in chapter 15 says this to one of the churches, rather in chapter 16, verse Verse 15, he says this, Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not, be, that he may not go about naked and be exposed. I think you and I should be careful that we do not live for the city of men because one day we will be ultimately exposed. And that exposure is not only the revealing of how we lived, but that exposure ultimately is destruction for all who have followed the way of Rome. So we are called to come out. Come out as you live in Midrand. Come out, don't buy the way of living that the world offers you. Jesus and his Jesus and his church has something better. And we will see this when John, when David points to us so clearly the city of God which promises which promises us something that is way way greater than what this world could offer us. Get out. You remember the movie? As I close to pray for us? You know the movie. You know it very well. Get out. Get out. Don't, don't, don't buy it. It's slavery, as you see in the movie. The world will keep you, will enslave you, and never satisfy you, and the end is destruction. So come out.